Hey everybody, welcome to episode 81 of Literary Disco, Tiger Man. Today, it's all superheroes, all the time. We'll begin with each of us discussing our favorite crime fighter, and then we will dive into Nick Harkaway's 2014 novel, Tiger Man, an innovative father-son superhero story set on the fictional island of Mancro. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me are novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. Hey, guys. Hi. Hey. <laughs> Todd, you just were so into that. Hey. Hi. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's actually sort of uh, ironic. No, it's something that we're recording an episode about superheroes on Father's Day because pretty much all superhero stories are about fathers and sons. Like when you really think okay, about it. Okay, this is a huge really? leap already, a crazy leap. Not about this book, but... I'm not sure about um, how, how... Batman? Batman's father is shot. Well, and so he, That turns mother. him into a ward of the state. Or whatever. What about Ant-Man? Spider-Man's... Ant-Man. I don't know anything about Ant-Man. Aquaman. Spider-Man's <laughs> dad is a spider? No. Okay. Spider-Man's dad... Yeah. Works in a lab. Think, no, no, Spider-Man's dad is gone. He's gone, yeah. Spider- oh, he's Spider-Man's dead. being raised by his aunt and his uncle. Grandparents. And then his right. uncle dies, and that's why he decides to fight crime. Yeah, Todd. Right. Superman's dad is a space alien. Okay. Yes. Yep, all right. That's, Superman is definitely a father-son story, because it's... Right. Kyle. Son of Son Jor-El. of Jor-El. Kyle and Jor-El. Right. Wonder Woman... I don't know anything You're about You're just making crap up. <laughs> but this book that we are discussing today is definitely a father-son superhero story. And it is Father's yeah. Day that we're recording this, so that's appropriate. So yeah, father-sons. Yep. Superheroes. <laughs> so uh, before before we get into it, I think I kind of feel like we should tell the listeners our new plan for our episodes. Um, because as soon as we go into superhero land, there's no, we're not coming out again. Um, so, listeners, you may have noticed that uh, we have been a little slow on releasing some of our episodes, and that's for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, we've got a lot going on, other projects that you guys all know because you've heard about Writer's Baby and Todd's books and my nothing. Uh, <laughs> but uh, <the laughs> Nothing other- takes a long time. I mean... When you when you really think about it, how much time do you devote to nothing? It's it's a lot. It's, it's a, a lot. lot. Yeah. Uh, but and then the there's other a thing great is, book by the way called "Doing Nothing" by Tom Lutz that everyone should read. Oh yeah, I've read that book. It's great. Um, anyway, the other thing is is we we all love longer books and we just basically can't read them fast enough to read enough of the great books that we want to read every two weeks. So what we're gonna do now is every other week will be a book club style discussion like we're going to do today about Tiger Man. And we'll look into bigger themes and spoil all kinds of books for you as you enjoy. Um, And then on the other episodes, we're going to do our games and bookshelf revisits and roulettes and everything. So the episodes will be shorter and more focused. Um, and we will be we'll be doing a better job for you guys. So let us know well, how you like it. Let's not let's not guarantee more focus because that's probably yeah. Not, let's okay. not guarantee. In fact, focus. they'll probably be more random and all over the place. <laughs> It'll be harder to rein Todd in. It'll just be shorter, but at least they'll be shorter. Yeah, they'll be shorter, but more frequent yeah. is what it is. Yeah. Because I think I think if you guarantee focus, Julia, um, 
I think that's where that's where you as a person with nothing going on could uh-huh. really start to expand into territory. I think we can keep this rumor that nothing is going on in Julia's life going. <laughs> Consider she has like 15 projects at once. Well, right. actually, I, I don't know if you guys saw this. I know our Twitter followers did, but um, I did get hired to be a contributor for Book Riot, so that's yeah. pretty cool. I did. That's awesome. That is very cool. Um, so what are, you, what are you doing for Book Riot? Tell us a little bit about what you're writing about. Um, for Book Riot, well, all I'm doing is contributing two posts a month. I mean, it's it's really great because, you know, I, I don't know if you guys have seen their posts or not. And actually, before I applied for this, I had no idea how popular they were or not. I've learned they are very popular. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a book blogging website, and they have all kinds of different categories. So I'm just submitting a couple posts a month on whatever I want. So, of course, um, to no one's surprise, my first two were on books about whaling and um, listening to audiobooks. <laughs> <laughs> and listening to audiobooks while running, because those are my particular interests. But, you know, really, I can write about anything I look forward I to your... Uh... I look forward to your extended feature on horse books. That should be that should That's be very great. enlightening. Yeah. Uh, thanks for horse the idea. <laughs> Do you have any books on improv comedy that you are interested in talking about? You know, I think I've said this before. Well, we did one of our episodes was on that improv book, the chairs are where the people go. Yeah. yeah. And that was actually a pretty good book. Oh, you hated that book. I, That's Todd, Todd hated it. Hated. You know, it'd be. I loved it. It would yeah. be interesting to go back and read about it, but I, I will say most books about improv are absolutely horrible. So, I probably won't be writing about that anytime soon. Because they seem nice over there, and uh, writer style rants are probably less uh, welcome than positive <laughs> recommendations. Writer <laughs> oh style rants, also the name of a uh, food truck coming to your town soon. <laughs> Okay, All right, so let's, let's tiger man. Yeah. Who wants to go first? Todd, why don't you go first? Why don't you tell us your favorite? Oh, I was going to say you go first, Julia. Oh. You never go first. All right, I'll go first. Well, you know, here's the thing. I feel like we live in the age where everybody feels like they know a lot about superheroes, but as soon as you start talking about it, there's some nerd in the wings waiting to correct you. So, <laughs> you know... I know. Some, some nerd just lurking in the shadows. <laughs> I will correct you. <laughs> well, it is true. true. It is true. I mean, that's, that's, what else is the internet but nerds waving the horn wings? <laughs> People who are experts on everything ready to correct yeah. you. So it's, it, it gets hard. Yeah. That's true. And it's like this, what, what once was a tiny corner of geek culture is now so mainstream that it, there's, it's a weird shift is what I'm saying. So I know that whatever I say is incomplete. And as you guys know, Greg works for Lego, and he has been, like, surrounded in superhero stuff because he's working out in superhero video games and stuff for Lego. Um, So I just know that whatever I say is wrong. But, um, you know, I have a couple answers to this. One is, like, who doesn't like Batman, but Batman's so overdone. The superhero that I actually think is the best... uh, and this is such a three-year-old boy's answer, so it's really hard for me to say this, but I think the Hulk is a really, really great superhero. I mean, it's a simple concept, and the the line that it walks between being a hero and just, like, an absolute monster villain is very appealing to me. So I love 
Bruce Banner, and I love the whole... I like all the different ways that the Hulk can be imagined and how mm-hmm. emotional of a superhero he is. I don't really connect to non-emotional superheroes. Another so thing... So who's your favorite actor to have played the Hulk? Bill Bixby, clearly. Who's that? Bill, Bill Bixby? Yeah. In the, All in I know is Lou Ferrigno. Um, well, yeah. So he turns into Lou Ferrigno. Yeah. But he was Bill Bixby. Oh, Bill Bixby was... Right. Gotcha. Terrible show. Well, I really liked, um, I really liked, uh, what's his name? Mark Ruffalo, or how do you say his name? Yeah. Mark Ruffalo. Yeah, I thought he was fantastic. I thought he was really good. Um, but I didn't see the Ed Norton one, so who knows? Um, but I. Ed Norton was pretty great. It's not a good movie, but I like the idea of Ed Norton as the Hulk, personally, because that's to to me a bigger transition. Yeah, and he he always brings a strange sort of coiled intensity to every role. Yes. Um, Yes. Whereas Mark Ruffalo has that sort of... It's Ruffalo. Ruffalo. I don't know how to pronounce his fucking name. Um, (laughs) He always uh, seems to me like just one step away from like putting on some indigo girls and having some patchouli and just everyone chilling out which also makes him that's why you want to call him Rufalo. yes but that also that makes him my... really compelling as the hulk I, he's my favorite hulk too um but the, ed norton had the potential i think it's just it was not a good movie yeah problem. and uh, before we move on to you guys i also want to say like i want my answer to be wonder woman but there has not been a good wonder woman no. In so long, like I don't feel like Wonder Woman belongs to me in any way. But all of the well, you sort of got shortchanged as a yeah. kid because there were no female superheroes when you were a kid, right? Oh, there barely are now. Wonder Woman, yeah, Wonder yeah. Woman sucks. There was actually a movie version of Supergirl that came out in the eighties that I remember watching a lot because I was so obsessed with Superman. And then there right. was a period where all you could yeah. get was Supergirl and. Uh, I should watch that again. I mean, I know it ended with the classic fight sequence at the old uh, carnival, like in a hall of mirrors. Oh Jesus! It's like, yeah, it's super predictable. It's like they, they fight at the haunted house at a carnival at the end of the movie, if I remember correctly. Oh but yeah. You, like you didn't. There weren't. I mean, I guess Buffy is almost like a superhero for for young girls at, in the early '90s and stuff, um, because you get. I mean, I, I think about like all the. Hall of Justice and all that stuff, the cartoons when we were kids. And yeah, Wonder Woman was on there. Um, but even then, she was never she was never a great hero, it seemed like. And the TV show is absurd with Linda Carter. I saw, I saw a clip of it the other day where Linda Carter um, is chasing down some evil skateboard gang. And like eventually, she's skateboarding through the streets of Los Angeles and then has to stop and throw her skateboard at someone to bring down the villain. And my thought was, someone had to write that. Like, so, someone someone was sitting at their computer and was like, exterior, L.A., day, Wonder Woman gets on skateboard. <laughs> well, have you, seen, have you seen the trailer for the new Supergirl TV show? No. Well, if you if you want to do something interesting, watch the Saturday Night Live skit with Scarlett Johansson, where they make a it's like a fake uh, movie for her character from the Avengers, mm-hmm. and the whole point is like, why doesn't Marvel do women superheroes? And then they, you know, it's like all about her just wanting a date. These <laughs> shoes don't fit. And then watch the actual trailer for Supergirl, and it's the same storyline, oh, and it's 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 really depressing. I think Supergirl might turn out to be 
better than it at first scene. No, it's going to be horrible. Uh, it's going to be. But horrible. were there but, were there um, women writing comic books? Yes, there were. Actually, there yeah, Back but in the they 30s were unfortunately. Yeah, but they 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 were sort of um, sidelined to girl centric comics, mm. which were like Little Orphan right. Annie, you know that kind of comic, or or you know the idea of like a soap opera, the, right. the idea of like superheroes were predominantly men, and Wonder Woman was a conscious effort. It's the, the history of Wonder Woman's fascinating. There's a book about it that just came out this last year that, that tells the whole story of Wonder Woman, because it was it was created by a man, um, but with the express desire to make women stronger and to to represent a, a strong woman. Um, and he himself was in a polyamorous relationship with two women. Oh. It's a really fascinating story. What? Yeah, and he's also the inventor of the lie detector, which is fascinating oh. when you think about... Right, when you think about Wonder Woman's lasso of truth. Right. Like, and, yeah, and if you look at the early Wonder Woman stuff, it's all S&M. Like, she's basically tying men up and... Um, a lot of tying guys up and overpowering. <laughs> was it? Was it? It's, Crystal it's clearly father? this guy's <laughs> kind of thing to huh. have a really powerful Amazon woman tying men up. Uh, yeah, but it's a fascinating. History. So, did you ever dress up as Wonder Woman, no. Julia? I'm way too short and blonde for that. <laughs> Do you have to be six <laughs> feet tall to be Wonder Woman? Is that? I, I truly never identified with superheroes at all. I mean, until it, and I didn't even really give them a lot of thought until they really entered the culture in the last 10 years. I mean, or I guess longer than that. When the first Spider-Man came out and it was really good, um, that was, that was fun. I, I was like, oh, I like this. I had no idea that we were in for like a 20 year period of that being most of our entertainment. Um, but right. I mean, yeah, all the characters I identified with you know, in my teen years were like, you know, disaffected girls, women. So like, you know, Daria and Buffy, who totally counts and all those kind of people. I never was into that kind of fantasy realm. I wasn't against it. It just isn't a part of, or it wasn't at the time, a part of little girls' lives in the way that it is right. now. Huh. I was never into superheroes either. I, I, I mean, I, guess I was when I was really little. I was really into Superman and Batman when I was, you know, three or four. Um, but it, and Superman was always my favorite, mostly because I loved the, the original Superman movie, which I still think is fantastic. The first two Superman movies are so good. Um, and I loved those when I was a kid. And I think a lot of it was because of the music, because John Williams' score is perfect. Um, but, you know, as I got older, Superman... Like, Superman's just kind of boring now. He's just... I don't know. I still... I mean, obviously, I, I, I appreciate, you know, Superman for being the, the, the archetypal... The defining superhero. But um, but I, I'm not really into that many superheroes. The only thing... And I didn't read comics that much when I was a kid. So the only superhero I could think of bringing up today, just because it's I was into it, and I read this entire series, um, and I, I think they ended up rebooting it. But in the mid-90s, there was a series of comic books that Image put out with a character named Shadowhawk. Either hmm. of you ever hear of this? No. Yeah, it was kind of missed, but for whatever reason, I somebody gave me this comic, and, and, and it was the comic that I was into and that I read. Um, because every other comic that I tried to read, like X-Men and stuff, I always just got lost because, you know, there were 40 years of history and i didn't really want to delve into it i just i was always overwhelmed 
Whereas the Shadowhawk started right when I got the first issue, when someone gave it to me. And so I was able to read it, and um, it was a fascinating character. It's very much a 90s character in that it, it you don't know who Shadowhawk is. He's sort of just a Batman figure. He's got, like, a special armor, really cool outfit, but he's just a dude in a suit going around. And his whole thing was he doesn't kill anybody, but he breaks people's backs. So, Yeah. <laughs> It's kind of violent and weird. And that was the whole point of the comic was to like question the violence of like, is it right for this vigilante to be going around breaking people's backs, like putting everybody in wheelchairs, really twisted. Um, But then like after about six issues or so, it was revealed that Shadowhawk was a, a black man, which was like, you know, at the time, like, oh my God, a black male superhero. Also that he was dying of AIDS. And that's why he was doing this. Was that's because weird. He is, wow. you know, right. So it was, and it's a very like PC 90s vision of a superhero, but with a really dark twist. Um, and I, I wonder like how it's being received now because I know that they rebooted it, but actually I, in the series that I read, they, the, they let the character die of AIDS. Wow. If I remember correctly, like the, the series ended, this series of books with him just dying and then there was like somebody might take up the mantle which i guess they decided to, to do um but i always thought that would make a great movie too but it was it was a good it was a, it was good in in that it, it it forced you to consider the violence in a way that i think batman tries to at times but for the most part batman's pretty great even though he beats the crap out of people just because he never kills anybody and he never uses a gun we're supposed to feel all right about the fact that he's still basically a fascist you know using <laughs> violence to well right i mean all superhero stories are if they use violence they're saying basically we have to use you know the right makes right i mean might, might makes right. right and that's always that's always what they're they're about and that's you know i mean obviously there's been twists on that in, in certain but the the fundamental superhero story is pretty yeah, I agree. I mean, I have trouble reconciling it. Just, I mean, I'm like so obsessed with the news this week, and I know these episodes come out on a delay, but like anytime there's any kind of like vigilante shooting, even if it's from a racist, mm-hmm. I just feel like, oh, this whole idea that you yourself, you know, are the one called, that it's your manifest destiny to right some wrong is just fundamentally against any social or governmental processes but it's it 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 is the it is the way people have acted since there were people oh you're right no, <laughs> no I, I mean that's I that know. that's the thing is and also when in times of chaos and i don't mean this in in either side of it uh you know if you believe you're being wronged by some race like that fucktard in south carolina or you know if you believe that the nazis are bad um you know there's always that lone gunman that comes out in in art to fight it um and that's what superman came from right superman was created to to take down hitler originally wasn't he wasn't that his his first job as a superhero no actually i mean not 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 really superman was more captain america was created that way Mm. captain america was uh, the first Captain, I think it was his first issue, but it was a year before America entered the war. They they did a cover where where Captain America was punching Hitler in the face, and that was pretty shocking. That was in 1940. Um, but but the, Superman kind of stayed out of the war until America actually entered the war. But this idea that one person can right wrongs, I mean, yeah. 
it's it is the provenance of crazy people and the provenance of politicians. I mean, that's it. The 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 fine line is is pretty narrow. Um, and so, you know, I that's right. But the methodology is is always going to be the most spectacular, which right. is going to involve either magical powers or violence, and right. ultimately violence. Even if you have magical powers, you're going to use violence because nobody. I mean, nowadays, hopefully somebody would, but nobody wants to read about a, a, a peacenik no. superhero yeah. you know, well, going around there was, like... There was a Superman movie where he um, where he solved the nuclear uh, escalation. It was Superman right. 5, Nuclear Man or something. And the last thing you want is your superhero standing in front, peace? Of the, in front of the UN. And it's a quest for peace. Yes. Superman 4, a quest for peace. Yes, it's really horrible. So, I, I mean, I, I think... It, you know that it's the western gunfighter it's the superhero it's the one man who comes into town and writes the wrongs it doesn't it doesn't require a cape um you know it just requires that there be chaos and one person can write that chaos and historically speaking in fiction and film but really in in prose that person has invariably done it through violence um through all the history of of the written word it's done through violence um, and, and then we wonder why people do violent things when they don't get their way. Well, it's... Well, I think there have been a couple very notable examples, like Jesus, Buddha... Who was then uh, killed. Non, but, I mean, nonviolence is... A, there's an alternative history of, of nonviolent heroic figures. Gandhi yeah, is a real true. one. Um, but, but, unfortunately, our culture, and especially comic book culture, is built on... A visual medium and it's much more visually exciting to solve your problems flying and punching and throwing cars than it is to watch people sitting down at the table and having a good discussion and working yeah. through your problems. Right. So, <laughs> right. so you're not going to, I mean that's, that's part of the problem with a visual based media culture which is what we are these days and that's why you know starting with dime novels and moving up through into the comic book form the predominant mode is, you know, I wouldn't say it's the novels or stories in general, um, Todd, because I think a lot of, you know, the, the rise of the novel in the 19th century was more about domestic scenes mm -hmm. and, and people working out problems and nonviolent. Like, it wasn't always drawn towards the spectacular or the violent. It was really the 20th century and a more visual culture that I think has pushed us to to the to that's to that being the predominant mode of solving conflict right like we ha we want to watch somebody fight their way through right. conflict because it's so much more fun because otherwise you're just watching people sit and talk or get on the phone and work their problems out um and yeah i mean i i think it's kind of dangerous personally i mean i'm i i think we're losing something with our, the by by prioritizing superheroes the way we do especially in our movie culture right now we are we are risking losing a lot of important values um yeah i mean uh, you know I, I just and then i'll tell you my superhero i just i i and i'm just as guilty you know this, this is it's it's not like i'm not guilty of this i make my living off of people doing violence you know um so this is something fictional that, violence hold on let's clarify fictional violence. fictional violence you don't make you just made yourself a mob boss right. i make my living off of people doing violence no. <laughs> um, fictional violence fictional violence so i mean i'm i'm guilty of this as well but you know, when when every big movie that we see involves, or, or you know, the, the biggest movies of the year involve the destruction of a planet or New York City being destroyed or 
millions of people dying while people fly around. I just think, you know. Yeah, that sounds a lot like climate change. That's, it, it's emblematic of, of where we are culturally. Um, and it's, it's, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to go to a movie also where there's just people sitting around talking about things quietly in a room. Um, I want to see something Right, but there happen. is also a way to, I think, there is a way to show the consequences of violence responsibly and also in a way that reflects reality. Yeah. Because the truth is, violence is is horrible. You know, real violence is awful. Like, getting punched in the face, you can you can die from that. Like, getting punched sucks. It's like a yes. horrible, horrible thing. And punching another person sucks. It's an awful, emo- you know, like, and yet it happens so often in movies and we're so desensitized to it now that it's the kind of the standard response to a situation. And, you know, that's why I think that last Superman movie got a lot of flack for this too because it was pretty horrible that they destroyed the entire city of metropolis and there's just faceless humans getting demolished by buildings and you don't care because all you care about is whether superman's going to break the guy's neck or not you know right. bad guy's neck and it's like wait a minute are we gonna are we gonna acknowledge the the human tragedy the cost of the, it's like no okay real quick and i'm tucker ives and you know, since I edit this, I can do this. But the Hollywood Reporter spoke with disaster experts who say the final scene in the first Avengers movie, you know, that big battle in New York, it would do $160 billion in damage. So to put that into perspective, the report says the September 11th attacks cost $83 billion. Hurricane Katrina cost $90 billion. And the 2011 tsunami in Japan cost $122 billion. But again... The Battle of New York, $160 billion. Eh, at least they captured it in IMAX. Even though something like Guardians of the Galaxy gets away with it because it's way more fiction, you know, it's outer space fictional. Mm-hmm. Um, it almost is even worse because it just makes a joke of violence. Like, it's just a constant, you know, it trivializes fighting. It makes fighting into just badasses with guns and looking cool in slow motion and it really trivializes it. and then they're like making quips. It's more about the wisecracks in and out of the violence and I think that's also dangerous in its own way. Um, but, you know, whatever. I, I paid to go see it too. And yeah, I thought, and I loved you know, Guardians well of the Galaxy. So. I absolutely right. loved it. Right, well, I love, you know, and of course when you're a kid you don't think so much of these things either. You know, when I, you know, I wasn't worried worried when I was watching Star Wars and all these other movies, the kid didn't bother me at all. Um, But I think that, you know, there is a, there is something to the fact that like, I I don't know, like I appreciate like that the, like Indiana Jones, which I loved when I was a kid, he was always a reluctant violent person. You know, he, he was a professor. It's like, he just wanted to be teaching classes, but he kept getting dragged into violence. And there was a sense of like, he didn't want to have to hurt anybody. And I think we're losing some of that. I, I just think there's a way to do this and tell these stories as remarkable stories where violence is necessary. I mean, this ties into Tiger Man. I think Tiger Man did a pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it, it, it was. Not, well, we can get into that when we get into it. Well, let me um, let me tell you about my favorite yeah. superheroes. So, my number super one, Super Pickle, Super Pickle is number one. <laughs> my my number one is Superman because I dressed up like Superman pretty much from about age five until about age fifteen. I just come home, put on the cape. I loved Superman <laughs> when I was a kid. I had the Superman dolls. I watched Super Friends. Like I was a big Superman guy. But to be perfectly honest. The superheroes I was most fascinated by when I was a kid were the Wonder Twins. Uh, because <laughs> I don't really know the Wonder Twins. I mean, I know... The, I only know them from the cartoon. The name, but, um, okay. but, you know, they were twin extraterrestrials, uh, Zan and Zana, or Zan and Jaina. They had a pet space monkey named Gleek. And 
it was just this weird, horrible relationship that the two of them had because Zan could only be, you know, water-based or whatever, and Jaina would be an animal, and so they'd need to fight something, and Zan would be, you know, form of ice bicycle, and his sister would be form of eagle, and he'd have to have his fucking sister pick him up and fly him somewhere and drop his ice bicycle on whatever was going on while they had this poor, subservient space monkey, Gleek, who taken from his native country, native native planet, brought to Earth to fight crime with these two who are horribly inefficient crime fighters. Um, and Gleek couldn't speak. He just no, sort of... Gleek would just say, Gleek! Um, of course. Or something like that. Who's with characters that are named after like the sound they make? Remember Snarf <laughs> from Thundercats? Yes. Snarf, Snarf. Pikachu? Yeah. Coder? So I was right. I was sort of fascinated <laughs> by the Wonder Twins. <laughs> they, and uh, then they have wing. They're the ones that had the rings, right? They would go like Wonder Twins. You know, yeah, Wonder Twin powers activate form of ice giant, form of gotcha. space hawk, or not space hawk. That would, form of superhero with AIDS will break your back. Um, <laughs> Shadowhawk. Shadowhawk. Um, so it was I, just a. I, I don't really know anything about the history of them. I'm just going from the actual Super Friends. But they were just... They, they also look like Donnie and Marie. In my mind, they're Donnie and Marie. But space aliens. And I, this whole idea also that a lot of superheroes are extraterrestrials, I think is something that we completely sort of don't talk about. Like, we want our superheroes to be superheroes, but let's face it, they're from another planet. If they showed up here, we would kill them. I don't like that these two are twins. I think I, I've never trusted twins. Twins have that strange <laughs> twin power. Uh, and I, I just, I don't like the whole thing with the monkey. So I was obsessed with them for a little bit as a child. Um, but Superman, for me, I, I loved him. I just, I, I would dress up like him. I had so many capes. So many capes and so many. Yeah, I was really into capes of, of too. The shirts. But you watched the movie, right? Like oh the yeah. The movie was a big part of that. Yeah. But I used to come home from school and they would show the old um, original TV series from you know the fifties or whatever with George Reeves, the guy who ended up shooting himself and killing himself. And that Superman was just sort of like a, hey everybody, I'm I'm Superman. I'll be here if you need me. Um, you know, like everyone was just smoking and hanging out with him, and he'd just show up places and walk around and. And it was, you know, all on a soundstage in L.A. somewhere. But I would come home from school, and, you know, he'd be faster than a speeding bullet and more powerful than a locomotive, and there would be George Reeves piled into that tight little suit. I used to watch it constantly. Um, you know, uh, jumping on your alien point, I think, did you ever read the Red Sun graphic novel? No. Oh, you would love it. It's an alternate history Superman where he lands in Russia instead of America. Oh and wow. becomes a superhero for Russia <laughs> because he just happened to land there. And, you know, it just poses the question of, like, why did he become, you know, this hero of the American values? Because he landed in Smallville. But if he'd landed right. in Russia, he would have been raised under that, you know, philosophy and ideology. And so it's a really interesting oh, alternative that's a history. Great he becomes idea. the sort of wow. everyman wow. for Russia, you know, hero, and he's fighting for the communist ideal. Um, yeah, it's a really great graphic novel. Um, I'm going to look it up who it was written by um, because it's it's definitely worth But I think you would love it because it, it you know sort of presents that exact question that you... Uh, Mark Miller hmm. is the author. Red Sun. It's really good. I'll have to check that out. Why has yeah. that not been made into a movie? 
you know, I think we're still in this era where we like our superheroes pretty straightforward. You know, like, I'm surprised the reboot of Spider-Man is just kind of the same story. Yeah. I never got into Spider-Man because I'm scared of spiders. Todd, you're very literal. Very literal literal person. (laughs) I just... I, I'm scared of spiders. I, I never liked Aquaman because it just sort of freaked me out that he was underwater all the time. You know who I never understood was the Green Lantern. Like, oh, well, he could just do whatever, right? Like that's yeah. But what a dumb name. I'm a I'm a light. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, should we just jump right into Tiger Tiger yeah, Man? Yeah, we should. This yes. shorter episode, by the way, it is going great. <laughs> it is. <laughs> just, oh, we can't keep it short. All right, so Tiger Man is a novel by Nick Harkaway. Nick Harkaway is an English author. This is, I believe, his third book. He's had uh, a nonfiction. He's had two novels and then a nonfiction book um, called The Blind Giant, Being Human in the Digital World, which is interesting. But his first two novels were The Gone Away World and Angel Maker, um, neither of which I've read. Um, so... Uh, this book, and, I'm not sure we should note, how, you, how way, you guys heard about it, but we, we, we'd all heard about it before we read it. We should note, um, incidentally, though, that Nick Harkaway is actually the son of John le Carre, uh, the great British spy novelist. I didn't oh, know, I didn't know that. that. Yeah, and cool. Nick Harkaway is not Nick Harkaway's name. Yeah, it's, it's like a, a superhero made-up name. Yeah. Hmm. His real name is Nicholas Cornwell. Hmm. Harkaway's better. Yeah, perfectly good name. No, it sounds kind of stuffy and British. (laughs) Harkaway, Harkaway writes your superhero stories, right? right? Exactly. Yeah, I like it. Um, Yeah, so I I I picked this book up a long time ago, not long time, a couple months ago, because my brother told me to read it, and then I just never had time, and uh, we wanted to read something for literary disco that we, you know, an area that we hadn't done in a while. We haven't done fiction. We haven't done superhero fiction, so. I suggested we read it, read it, but you were already reading it too, right, Todd? Yeah, I had started to read it when it uh, when it came out. I had received a review copy of it um, before it yeah. came out, and I I was immediately taken with it, and then I stopped reading it right in the middle because I had started to read something else and forgot about it basically. Uh, that's exactly what I did. <laughs> so I think the, I think the book did well, though, right? I mean, it sold yes. well. It, it was popular. Yes, the reviews um, so were takes... spectacular. Right. So let's uh, let's give a, a brief background. It's it takes place on a, a fictional island, um, and it's you know this colonial outpost that has gone through multiple governments, um, and it's the story follows a sergeant from England who is left on this island as it is in the process of being evacuated over the course of months maybe years Years. yeah because some chemical company has put uh horrific chemicals into the earth which are now being belched out in clouds by these volcanoes on the island and um these gas clouds are changing things changing the plants changing people uh so it's this weird sort of superhero-y potential coming out of these gas clouds um but Despite that, it's actually a pretty realistic setting um, at first. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's definitely sort of, it's not your typical superhero story the way it begins. It feels like a just, you know, kind of down and out sergeant um, who has befriended this young local native boy um, who 
is kind of this pop cultural amalgamation. The way the boy speaks is part internet speak, part comic book influence and TV movie music. So he does all these, he has all these weird phrases and sentences and it's, it's kind of its own dialect. It's like a form of English that is, you know, a combination of, I, I guess, a, a structurally a, a fictional Mancro language blended with Pop's culture speak. It's it's actually it, that is yeah. a really cool part of the book. And then even um, just yeah, some formal, like really strong, excellent, well taught English, mm-hmm. right? You know, which is which is always surprising because he'll he'll speak in you know in in words that aren't words but are words only when you type them, mm-hmm. um, right. and then he'll you know then he'll say a line that's in perfect Queen's English, and you realize oh this is you know he's just a, an amalgamation of everything. He's a cipher. Right. Yeah, like he says several times, I think, this exact phrase, we shall be full of wind. Yeah. And that's like, okay, wow. Wow, yeah. So that that's just one that jumps out to me on that level. Right, yeah. Creating this cool patois. Um, so really it's about the, they're, they, the book begins with them having this, you know, interesting friendship, and it's pretty clear that the sergeant is starting to see him as this pseudo-son figure, and then violence strolls into town. A group of outlaws attack the bar that the boy and the sergeant are, are hanging out in one day. And the sergeant saves the day. And With some custard. A, yeah. <laughs> and then it becomes tin. this sort of slow development of a superhero, but in a very self-conscious way. Um, I don't know, well, well, uh, before we go on any further, what did you guys think of the book? I, You know... I thought two things. I thought that I bet it's an amazing audiobook. Um, because with the right reader, I think all the whimsy that's in it would be extraordinarily entertaining to hear. I, I really liked the book. Um, but I, I at some points, I began to suffer the same problems I suffered in reading Galapagos, which is that the message and the... Um, and the winking almost overshadowed my joy of it. I, I got past it. I think that's why I stopped reading it halfway through initially is I was like, oh, all right, you know, I, I get all the stuff, self-referential stuff. But once you give yourself up to the fact that you're reading a book about comic books, a book right. about superheroes, right, yeah. but also a book about post-colonial England, about the nature of war, um, yeah. and about what it means to be a parent even if the child is not yours. All these big, deep themes. Um, but if you just give yourself over to the whimsy, it's it's just a it's a lot of fun. Um, mm-hmm. And that's why I kept thinking, oh man, I, I wish I had just played this while I was making a 10-hour drive somewhere because I, I, I suspect it would be a charming companion coming out of the backseat of a car. Well, that's funny because I did listen to the audiobook. Oh. Um which so I, I. I rarely do. I actually did both. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think you're right. I mean, I could. I just read, as I mentioned recently, Ready Player One, which is a similar, you know, burrito of pop culture. Um, <laughs> and uh, and by that I mean you're like, holy shit, this is too much. Um, <laughs> but yeah. hearing it. Um, Hearing it was actually a lot less um, annoying. It did, as you're saying, it did take away any, like, 
it took away a lot of winkiness to hear mm-hmm. things like WTF or Full of Win written out. And the guy who read it is was great. Um, and there are all these other really interesting characters in there, too. And he, he did a great job. Um, but, I mean, like, I liked it a lot. I think I'm just starting to get a little superhero fatigue in general. And then this, like, double paternalistic thing of, like, oh, I want to take care of this boy. And, you know, obviously uh, Britain and colonialism and all that stuff. It was just... I guess I kind of wasn't in the mood for it um, when I first started, but it did take me in, and I, I, I will say I did really like it. Um, but what I liked about it is I love hearing about societies that are like on the brink, that are up against a wall, and yeah. what kind of havoc does that create, and how do moral values shift accordingly? So all of that was big positive for me. Yeah, and I think you know. It- my suspension of disbelief sometimes is is hard to get through when I'm reading a book. If I don't get into it right away, then I'm just reading and I'm not in the world. Um, and it took me, you know, it took me 150 pages to really suspend my disbelief to just have a good time. And and I think this is the thing that makes superhero movies somewhat easier than a book like this is that in a movie, all of a sudden you're just dropped in and there's a guy flying and there's lasers or whatever and you're just in it. And here, I mean, it's it's a really slow buildup to him becoming a superhero, um, and it's filled with um, so much obvious setup for what's to come. Like I I knew that he was going to have to save the boy and become the boy's father, and, and we won't reveal the ending, but um, you know that that was obvious from page one, and so the tropes of the form still have to exist in a book about the form. You know what I mean? Right, and I think that's yeah. the challenge of it. It's it's always tricky when something tries to be self aware and then also satisfy the conventions of the genre. Right, right? like it's it's a tough balance. I mean, in a way, Kick Ass I felt was kind of the same thing. It's like on one hand, it's trying to make fun of superhero movies, right? And you're supposed to be laughing at how ridiculous Nick Cage is in the suit and. But then it actually just is a superhero right. movie. Like if you kick ass beat for beat is the same story as Spider-Man. It's the exact same story. It's just slightly more self-aware and it takes longer to earn that story. So it's just a it's just a defense mechanism to, you know, rationalize the, the journey that you're gonna go or to, to, to make the buy-in easier for a, an audience that's more self-aware. Because, you know, when you watch like the first Spider-Man, it seems kind of naive that Peter Parker lives in a world where there aren't comic books. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, why wouldn't he know that there's such a thing as superhero? Why wouldn't... It's, a, it's the same sort of thing that, like, The Walking Dead walks that line where they never have the word zombies. You know? Like, somebody pointed that out to me once, and you're like, oh, right. That totally makes sense. Like, if we never say the word zombies, then we live in a world where zombies aren't a thing. So The Walking Dead is functioning in this weird alternate universe where there's never been Night of the Living Dead or Return of the Living Dead or all the millions of zombie things that obviously there are in the world. And this book is so self-aware about superheroism and comic books and all the tropes. And and it's it's like, on one hand, you, you have all that stuff in order to make it more realistic. But then since this book ends up being, a, like you're saying, a whimsical superhero adventure mm-hmm. story, 
I don't know why you need to have all that stuff. <laughs> like, I would almost like I guess because of the the way it started, I was expecting it to be really just a great colonial like failure of the superhero. Mm-hmm. You know, like I expected it to actually be about the the desires and the dreams for a superhero, but. I was kind of hoping it would fizzle out into this sad, tragic way. <laughs> I, I was, I was hoping that too. Worldview. But then it just, right. it, it actually, it starts out so wide and encompasses all this mm-hmm. stuff and even encompasses the war in Afghanistan. Um, right. And I wanted it to hit those things harder, I guess, because they're really well placed. They are. And, they are. And But what yeah. happens is it starts out really wide and then it just narrows into, at the, at the end, and even the writing changes. You know, you go from these really long... Yeah chapters of you know 30 or 40 pages or whatever to these you know quick hitting two page chapter scenes um and it just it's forced into the box it's created and the box it's created is there has to be a violent conclusion there has to be a lot of exposition um because at some point someone has to turn to someone else and say well here's the truth (laughs) and right i mean that's Take off their mask and right. explain and that, the I mean, that's, evil plot. That's right. the form, and that's what the form at some point requires. Um, and if you don't buy into it, and and we're talking about like we didn't like the book. I I, I really enjoyed the book by by the time I finished reading it. Um, but you know, there's a there's sort of a logical leap you have to make, which is that if one person had just asked another person, "Who are the bad guys?" and another person answered honestly, the book would be over on page two. <laughs> and... I mean, I kind of disagree with you, Ryder. I think that the fact that it exists in a world where they all know what superheroes are was a strength to me because, I mean, we're getting it so close on Lester's point of view anyway that that explains both his extreme reluctance um, because it's ridiculous and also the fact that he's going along with this to please a child. You know, right. that... That is a good motivation for being a superhero. Right. And there's a little moment where he, you know, he's a sergeant, he has a gun, and it's really, really funny. You know, he uh, he picks up his gun to put it on his utility belt or whatever, and, um, and the boy says, you know, like, Batman never had a gun, you've got to do it with your bare hands, blah, 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 blah. And then there's some kind of pause, and then the boy says, also, it would be horrible if you shot someone. Right. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's that kind of moment that, you know, the fact that they're getting all this comic book knowledge is infusing it with humor and reasoning that it, it, it's really hard to imagine the Walking Dead version of this, where he's, like, just decides that he needs to dress as a tiger and, like, punch people that that's right. more crazy to me than than well, justifying it through these child's eyes there's a there's a great moment early on um when you find out sort of what his day encompasses just like a normal day and that ends up, it ends up being the grist of this entire novel um so he's got a tray of things he has to do a, a bunch of requests that have been sent to him for his attention and it's basically of local police matters. So though he's a officer of the of the British Army, he's basically the local cop in town. And the requests are a lost dog. He felt that one would probably take care of itself, but the lady to whom the animal belonged was very insistent that he must come, Benesif said, and very sad. Well, perhaps it wouldn't hurt. A ghost woman running half-naked through the shanty, swimming in a water tank and frightening children, she was becoming a fixture, but she seemed to be harmless, and she even had a few fans. 
It helped that she was evidently a pretty a pretty ghost, and sometimes left unlikely gifts. An ongoing investigation he wasn't sure he ought to solve. And then it goes on. So right. it's it's the very specific someone's got a lost dog to there's a ghost running around town, but she's a pretty ghost. So you right. you get that the world is tinted um, pretty quickly, and if you don't find it charming, you just find it winking. And so I found it charming eventually. Um, because I think that the British humor in it is really pretty specific and yeah. amusing. Um, and I think Harkaway does a great job of layering in um, something beyond what we would expect in a book like this. Because it really is about colonialism and it really is about um, private companies and it's about war and it's about love. All those things are in it. And, and I think that's that makes it go beyond a comic book it makes it something larger which is what you know the, the form of the novel should do right i guess i i should have known that earlier i think i think i you know i i think probably our readers or our listeners if they want to read this book going into it knowing that it's a really fun adventure story will get a lot more out of it i think i went in and early on i guess because it was this fictional colonial island history that i was just like oh this is gonna this is gonna delve deep into these things and really really pull them apart and really you know show the the false hope in comic books or the the false hope in superheroics and it just it wasn't that and that's fine i i think but i was just kind of expecting something different so i think if you go into this book hoping to read like a, basically a fun take on a superhero story you'll you'll love it because it, it does have all those those things lurking in the background. Um, how do you guys feel about the colonial, the post-colonial message of this film, though? Because there's something a little tricky to the idea that, you know, there's the British guy still does save the, the natives. Yeah. Right. You know, yep. the, the natives don't save themselves. They're still kind of a mob that needs saving. They are uncontrollable they are there's a lot of the like even though it's a fictional what is it pacific island it's it's it, it does feel like it verges on some stereotypes of colonialism too which at first i thought they he was going to complicate but it ends up being kind of you know they're they're superstitious yeah they're there's the lazy, shifty japanese there's there's something a little that i it got a little by the end i was like wait a minute there's there's a, there's a paternalistic like you know there's a father-son story about this poor native who needs to be saved by the... so there's something a little that i was hoping would be more complicated and more interesting because the setup could have allowed for that but instead it kind of felt like a colonial fantasy not a post-colonial I reality agree. Mm -hmm. i yeah. agree i was waiting and you know and of course with the audiobooks i always feel like maybe i missed it you know but I was waiting for it to feel subverted, you know, right. that it wasn't a story of a white guy saving everybody. Um, but it certainly is. I mean, he is very reluctant. Um, but, I mean, that was definitely lurking, to me, lurking heavily in my mind. I mean, I don't think that the characters are stereotypical. I think there's a huge variety of a lot of different types of people and they're not portrayed offensively to me but the oh the I mean, foreigners just, are the ones that interact with each other right like it's really a story about the british government the american government 
the Japanese government. The Belgians. Right? It's about all the... It still ends up... The people that matter the most at the beginning and the end of the book are the non-natives. They're the colonial but, powers. So he, but here's the thing. I mean, a novel doesn't need to fix the world's ills. So, of course not. But so if he wants if to it, portray... If it replicates... But if it's, if it's purporting to be... You know, if it's in a world where... Let me just... I feel like the setup for this book, the way it set felt for me was like this world-weary sergeant who was on this outpost, and there was a sense of like, what are we doing here? Right. There's a sense of like, colonialism has failed. We shouldn't be here. The very fact that chemical companies came in and screwed up this island and ruined the natives' you know, existence, it, there was an anti-colonial attitude. Yeah, for and sure. And so then for the savior of that to still be the colonial powers, and for our sense of... Um, you know, at the end of the book, the people that matter and the characters who matter are still the colonial powers, and that you know CNN broadcasts these stories everywhere. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's just replicating the values that you're sort of saying you're criticizing with your setup. So I think I just I guess I I, I mean yeah, it doesn't have to do anything, but I'm still gonna gonna judge Nick Harkaway's approach at the end if he doesn't if he doesn't complicate things that I think he should be aware of their complications and be aware of their nuances that he opened these doors. He kind of stuck his foot into something he, he should have been more responsible with if he was going to do that. I feel like, you know, cause as in the end it's, it's, uh, it's tricky. Well, and I think, but, yeah, you know, I think the book. secondary <laughs> characters in general, you know, they, they land in some fairly easy racial stereotypes. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, I, I think we're all guilty of that. Um, I don't think. But he gets away with it because it's a fictional island. He gets away with it because it's a fictional That's island, part of and it. because it's a whimsical voice. So you think right. maybe he is poking fun at the very thing that he is creating. But who knows? I mean, we don't know his. We don't know his vast intention other than to tell a good story. Um, but I, I, there's no way to look at this book and not think in the end colonialism bad. Like the, the there's there's even though the sergeant saves the day, even though he becomes the superhero. That's true. It, yeah. He's still a function of a corrupt system that he's aware right. of, that he knows he's there to do nothing, and you know. So I I think that that is a subtextual thing, but it's something that the sergeant understands that Lester understands himself. Um, but you know the the role of the superhero in anything is that you you aren't capable of saving your own day you need someone else in a cape to come do it for you um right and so you know you can't at the end of a superhero book have the superhero turn to the people and say you know what now you solve this you know i mean it, it, would, it would be like what the fuck what happened to the superhero what kind of shitty superhero is that Maybe, or maybe that's exactly what we need now. <laughs> I mean, that's what our story. I mean, that's wouldn't that be kind of great if you could pull that off, though? I mean, if if you could tell that story where it really is about nonviolence and a, you know the heroics of nonviolence or the heroics of allowing a native population to have their own voice and their own intelligence or respecting their culture not as a substandard culture but as a culture in its own right with its own you know interests and. Uh, complicated world view but instead of that's not the realm for a book like this i mean i mean that's things no. fall apart you know that, that you're, you're basically saying nick harkway should have written things fall apart um well what well, here's what i you, yeah hang fine. on hang on all right yeah though this is we're going <laughs> <laughs> um i think 
I think changing the dramatic structure of a superhero story is not realistic criticism of the book. But what I don't get is why you would why you would choose to have this colonialist figure become the superhero rather than a native of someone on the island. Someone who's actually rejecting this world that's been put upon them. So that, that to me, is an interesting choice. Like, I get why you would do it if you were going to subvert it deeply, but it's weird. It's, it, it, to me, it was strange, and I was waiting for it to be changed dr- dramatically somehow. But I also may have missed it because I listened to the audiobook and didn't go back and, you know, read every word as carefully as I normally do. But, like, that is an option, you know, that a native of this, like, corrupted, polluted wasteland would become the superhero and not a 40-year-old white guy. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, but that, that's an option. But that's not the book he, he wrote. <laughs> I mean, for sure, for sure, no, for sure. I mean, that, but, but, but he's trying, but I think the point for me is that he's trying to have his cake and eat it too a little bit because he's raising the specter of colonialism and trying to it, it, imbue this book with a sense of criticism of colonialism, but then at the same time tell a colonial story, right. a colonial success story. And so that to me is a little contradictory on its own terms, not necessarily, you know, and so when I opened this book and I start reading this very realistic account of this fictional world, I I was hoping that it would go somewhere interesting with it, and it and it doesn't. It it is just a superhero story yeah. where colonial powers are reauthorized. It's actually a, you know the, the English were right. The English government is really great. It's by the end of this. Book. It's basically like, pretty a, powerful a, and awesome. a cozy crime novel where the English government wins. Is what it yeah. is. Right. I mean, there's tea and crumpets, here's for a, Here's a side note. A side note. So, yes, I was basically listening to this straight through yesterday, and then I took a break to watch a movie. Um, and the movie I ended up watching was The Grand Budapest Hotel, mm-hmm. which have you guys seen? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very similar. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, that was weird. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but I... I mean, I don't know. Wes Anderson's, I know, at this point, like, controversial. It's like, are people over it? I don't know. But I've never anyway, gotten I really Wes like Anderson. The movie and the- like, there's one Wes Anderson movie I really like, The Royal Tenenbaums. And all the other ones, I, it's just, he doesn't appeal to me. I know that's an unpopular yeah. opinion amongst people of my ilk. Well, actually, yeah. I think that's, that's it fan. now. I think that's the pendulum has swung away. He's done his thing so many times. But... I really like him still, and this and this particular movie is very beautiful. And Ray Fiennes is really good in this colonialist role. And I don't know; it was I don't want to say too much about it, but it, the Grand Budapest Hotel has this emotional center that is not obvious at first and comes through later in the movie. That I think ended up being for me a really good companion to this book mm-hmm. um, about you know formality and kindness and basically Britishness as as a very uh, honorable thing in a terrible, cruel world. So, <laughs> anyway, for anyone who likes that movie, you're probably going to like this book and vice versa. And it was really interesting to experience them in the same 24-hour period. Did you then, just, did you then just wear very ornate clothing and ride an antique bicycle to the marketplace where you bought some artisan meat and cheeses? Uh... First of all, uh, no, because <laughs> I'm really awkward on a bike, and 
when you think about it, who isn't? You know, it's a really strange enterprise riding a bicycle. Your legs are going, you're holding on for dear life. If you're a guy, you're constantly but, worried about hurting something. Or maybe that was uh, just I mean, me. What I like about Wes, what, uh, as you're mocking him, what I still love about Wes Anderson is, you know, the formality of each frame and the, it's like use of color and shape and you know, the stillness of each frame is really beautiful to me. It's not about the artisanal records and whatever. So, I, I love the way his movies you know, look. I just, it's a visual the, movie. I just can't connect with them emotionally, other than Royal Tenenbaums. There's no emotion. He's essentially autistic. Yes, basically. No, he's obsessive-compulsive autistic. I mean, his mo- I mean, I don't know him. I'm just saying his movies feel like you're watching, and that's... But, like, what what pisses me off about his films is that when he tries to have an emotional core, like, the love story in Grand Budapest between the two young lovers is laugh-out-loud horrible. And same with the Moonrise Kingdom. It's a joke. It's like, what are we doing? Like, he's just puppeteering these, these... And the dialogue is always witty. I think the acting is brilliant most of the time. And But... You know, at his heart, his movies are heartless. Right. There's nothing going on but, you know, playing with dolls. That's really all that's going on. Is the dolls are, are saying witty things. But, and, but this... the worst is, like, in Grand Budapest when there's an emotional moment and the, the camera, there's a practical lighting shift where it literally goes dark and then the lights come back up and one of the characters has tears already placed on his cheeks. It's like, we can't possibly have seen somebody experience an emotion. We just have to have seen the aftermath of it. Because Wes Anderson can't let actors actually have emotions in front of his camera. It's all this pre-planned, you know, fake world. And you either buy into that and it's like, you know, oh, the paper mache things are doing their robotics. No, I mean, that's, that's what, and it's, it's pretty and that's what you enjoy. And, you know, I think Royal Tannenbaum's worked best and his early movies worked best because he was commenting on that in Mm -hmm. a way. Like, you had at the heart of Royal Tannenbaum's a character saying, I have no emotions, come feel things for me. And they were trying to create a plot, trying to create a story where people cared about them and they couldn't make it happen. And, you know, that Royal himself was this guy, um, you know, faking his own death just to get attention. He was trying to get emotion out of... Where it wasn't there, oh. and then of course but, there's a novelist whose reviews were never that good. <laughs> that, that appeals to me. <laughs> I mean, Royal Tenenbaums is definitely the best, and that we can agree on. And I'm going to stop this. Here. Tiger Man would yes. make a good Wes Anderson movie, though. Wes, if you're out there, it you should option would. it, make a, it a decent would. film. What are we reading next? Oh yes. So uh, next up, we're doing the free library selection, which was uh, we posted a photo and a list and a survey, and our listeners have voted, and we are reading Animorphs Invasion, which, as far as I understand, is a (laughs) YA series, and luckily it's the first in the series. When our readers voted on it, I was scared for a second that it was like number 10 in the whole series, but it's the first one. Do you really think it matters which Animorphs? I think it no. does, because at least we're not completely lost in, like, book ten, where characters are like, you know, I am your father, and we don't know what that means. <laughs> well, well, no, we know that what that's that means. Pretty that's pretty simple and direct dialogue. Obvious oh, that's Star Wars reference. Obvious. Okay. So, yeah. So, next up, we're going to be doing the Animorphs. Um, and I guess that takes place in my outro, which I was going to record anyway. So uh, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and uh, in a couple of weeks, hopefully we'll have an episode up for you. Thanks for listening. Magno.